Hey, Peace Nicks. Today's guest is Sister Kate, founder of Sisters of the Valley. They are a non-religious sisterhood, a convent of nuns, though they are not actually nuns and refer to themselves as a sisterhood. They enjoy cannabis and grow and sell CBD hemp flower. They are activists. They are spiritual. They fight the green fight. They were just in Rolling Stone magazine. I had a great conversation with Sister Kate. She tells us her story and how the whole thing began. And we get into the war on drugs and politics and racism in America. The Catholic Church's unscrupulous support of any politician thumping the Bible. We talk about veganism and how it might work better if you ease up on meat eaters. How about less meat instead of no meat at all? She talked about how they are vegan for two weeks and then break that fast every full moon. So two weeks on and two weeks off. But she talked about a 5% policy. Maybe try and not break the rules like 95% of the time, but we'll let 5% slide. You know what that policy says to me? It says, I have compassion. I understand we are all human. I'm not perfect and no one should expect someone else to be. I wish our criminal justice system had some of that kind of empathy and understanding. We have drug policies in place that can land a first time offender life in prison. I think this is why spirituality is important and not to be confused with religion. Some of the most devout and pious people have been the most unforgiving when it came to burning people at the stake, hanging them in the square or sending them to death row. But those who walk a spiritual path, they could be Christian-based or Buddhist or atheist, a spiritual path will lead to empathy, which is always going to choose forgiveness over condemnation, love over hate. And I'd like to think that a true spiritual path will also extend that empathy beyond humanity. Empathy for our fellow creatures and for the big blue and green Mother Earth herself. This was such a great podcast with Sister Kate. I'm think so thankful that they came on, that she came on. Um, I'm so happy I got to do this. Thank you for listening. Puff, puff, pass. Let's dive in. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs abuse. are menacing our society. What are your thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, Thank you for joining us. This is the piece on drugs. drugs. Hi. Hello. Hi, Aaron. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. Oh, sure. I'm happy to. I, I like what you're doing. It's wonderful. Oh, thanks. Yeah, this is really cool. I, uh, I have a friend that has a subscription to Rolling Stone, and he sent me your article and the article you were in. And I, I was like, oh, well, he said you should get him on the podcast. And we reached out, and here you are. This is, this is awesome. I read the article. I, I loved it. Good. So yeah, I wanted to... it was a good article. It was the headline was annoying, you know, trying to cure the world one joint at a time. <laughs> um, we're not even in the joint business, but uh, anyway, whatever editors do that with their headlines. Yeah, yeah, definitely is a, a could be a little misleading because you guys uh, specialize in CBD, right? Pardon? You, you specialize in CD, CBD, yes. yeah. Yes. Yes. I'm going to turn this up a little bit. When we when we were wearing our habits, our hearing gets a little impaired. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, I wanted to start with the 
kind of how you started, uh, how you got into this. I thought it was so, so cool um, because it was such a kind of an insignificant thing that you would think, you know, like a little joke that you made that kind of kicked off the whole thing. And it made me think of, um, of like uh, in chaos theory, the butterfly effect where a butterfly flaps his wings in the Amazon causes a storm in Europe. And um, you just made a little joke. If pizza is a vegetable, then I'm a nun. Yes. And it's funny because I remember that story. I was that was back when John uh, John Stewart was on the Daily Show and he made the joke about it. He's like, "Well, finally, Congress agrees on something. Pizza pizza is <laughs> a vegetable." So, if you can explain to my listeners um, what that joke means, that so they understand it, and then how that kind of led you into Occupy Wall Street and to where you are now. Okay, so yeah, it's kind of an interesting story. And and uh, lately, with the amount of interviews I've gotten, I've had to get more succinct about the whole thing because there's been there were like a series of episodes that happened. Uh, first of all, right, Congress uh, Occupy had already started. And me and I had a house full of college kids and high school kids doing advanced classes, and the Occupy movement had started, and we were following it from Egypt to New York to our little town in Merced. And we were gearing up to go to like our first Occupy event. And uh, that morning I read that Congress had declared pizza vegetable. And I said to the boys, you're not gonna believe this, but Congress just declared pizza vegetable. Not only that, I think that at that point I, we, we were watching it. I'm not sure it happened the same day, but like a week later they convened so what happened actually is Michelle Obama tried to talk to them about how unhealthy our children's meals are compared to other first world countries, kids and how they feed them. And they, they filibustered and wouldn't listen to her speak. And that, I was so insulted by that. And then they convened on taxpayer dollar to declare pizza sauce a vegetable so that they could count that as a healthy portion. Ridiculous. So I said, if, if pizza is a vegetable, I'm a nun. And my nephew said, you know, we have, a, I saw a nun costume in our costume uh, bin. And I was like, you're kidding. I didn't remember having it. He got it out and I put it on. And they dared me to wear to Occupy uh, event that we were going to. So I did. And uh, I was dubbed Sister Occupy. I got a lot of attention, at least to the activism cause. I was doing it as sort of a thumb to the establishment when I was wearing a black and white outfit. And I was also very much paying attention to where the heck are the clergy? Like the last time civil rights uh, issues came up in this country and we had to do reform, the clergy were very present and they were gone. So it made me the sole crazy nun out there. And as I was out at these protests, various protests, tuition hikes at universities, um, we broke a seven-year strike, dock worker strike by blocking access by the ships to come in. And we said that strike got settled. Every time we did a big protest, stuff happened. And, and I met very intelligent people. And along the way, people were trying to encourage me to, uh, to formalize what I'm doing. And I had to say, no, you don't get it when one person is a religion, religion of one. That's as crazy as you get. I wasn't setting out to formalize anything. That, but that's what started the dialogue of if we were to have a new age order of nuns, what would they look like? Because they certainly wouldn't look like what we got now. As I did my research, I learned that there were 350,000 nuns in America when I was growing up, and there were less than 50,000 when I was doing this research seven years ago. The average age of a new nun in America is 78 years old. I mean, that's a dying order. So we had, it was a four year conversation on what would a new age order of sisters look like. And of course, everybody wanted to make it a religion. 
And I know about religions. Religions, to be a religion, you have to be in the pure business of selling words. That's insane. We've got mm-hmm. we've got more gifts to offer the planet than just words. So I, I fought that. And in the end, after four years, I ended up establishing a, a real sisterhood. That's that's beautiful. I, and I was going to ask you, because you are you're not a religious order, but you're a spiritual. And yeah, I mean, we do. Here's what we believe that Christianity, with all its good intentions, took some wrong turns and uh, we came up with the Inquisition. And at that point, all the history of all the women who ever were scholars that ran their own enclaves was pretty much destroyed. So we believe that we all need to steer ourselves back to the practices that were going on around the planet before the Inquisition made them illegal back to putting Mother Earth at the center of our spirituality. So even though we live together and we work together and we pray together and we take vows, all of which qualify us to be nuns, the Catholic nuns who follow us and are supportive of what we do prefer we call ourselves sisters because to them nuns is Catholic nuns. Mm -hmm. But we didn't give ourselves the moniker we nuns. We call ourselves sisters. We live together, we work together, we pray together and we take vows. That qualifies us. However, we don't take vows to an institution or a person. We take a vow to organize our lives by the cycles of the moon. That means all our spirituality is kind of contained to full moons and the four, we call them the four corners of the year, the equinoxes and solstices. Those are our holy days. Uh, New moons are for the women, full moons are for the tribe. New moons, we go vegan or vegetarian, basically, because we're not strict vegans, but new moon, no meat on our plate while we're making medicine. Full moon, we break our fast with meat and we have meat and we have a tribal feast. And then we rinse and repeat. (laughs) So all our spirituality is about, uh, is is a fire circle native based in its belief system. That's really, that's really cool. And I'm, I'm kind of doing the same thing with my life. Cause I've, as I've gotten more spiritual and I have a spiritual segment on my podcast, I've wanted to go more vegan, but I'm not vegan. And I, I feel like meat needs to be a part of my diet for just health purposes, but a lot less meat. I was eating it. People that's eat so much meat. Us, and that's what happened. We had a, we had a, oh my goodness. At the beginning of founding the order, all of my headaches were between the vegans and the non-vegans. Oh my goodness. He <laughs> cheese in the vegan tray she it's okay she puts her vegan food in my meat tray. no i don't somebody else did all of that the the business of containing i also think we need meat i also think that especially women who bleed need meat and need iron i know you can get it in other ways but i don't like the idea it is not ancestral to give up meat our ancestors ate meat they maybe made it a Sunday meal, which is the only time of the week they had meat, but they ate meat. So that's why we've decided that while we're making medicine, we will be vegetarian. But for the next two, so two weeks a month, we're vegetarian, basically, and two weeks a month, we're allowed and we serve meat once a day. I like that. That's uh, and that's kind of I, I do meat Mondays now. Some people do no meat Mondays. I'm doing meat only on Mondays, with the exception of I can have seafood. Um, so I'll have a little bit of, of fish. Right, here you have there. to create your own thing that works for you. And and <laughs> I once went to a vegan get together here, and uh, this woman just was shocked that we are only practicing two weeks a month, and she just thought that was horrible. And I all I could say to her is, yes, 
your hardcore veganism has been setting back the movement now for 30 years because people people just put up their barriers when you say all vegan when we're really what we want to go back to something more ancestral like meat on Sundays and the leftover pots do on Tuesdays so that you are having a gentle amount of meat in your diet but extinction isn't the focus of your diet Exactly. And I think that's how, that is how we change the world. We don't change it by trying to convince everybody to go vegan. We can convince everybody to eat less meat. And for health reasons, I think meat's very important for a diet, but too much meat is clearly bad for your diet. Yeah. And I wanted to, I wanted to always put into a big scroll that drops down all our exceptions because like if someone's <laughs> sick, they can have meat. If the meat was prepared before the new moon and it has risk of being wasted, you can eat the meat. We have lots of like exceptions to this because we just don't want to be so strict about it. Oh yeah. And I do too. My, my exception is if I go to someone's house and they're serving meat, I'll eat it. Like I'm not going to turn it down. Exactly. Exactly. The last thing we all want is a lecture on our food habits. (laughs) Exactly. So, so back to the, uh, the moon cycles, I want to talk to you about, but you were talking about how it's kind of a based on uh, almost the beginning of your church. At one point you went up the mountain with the native American, um, a different tribe. That was kind of another like uh, seminal moment for me is that, so I went to a, uh, in Fresno every year, I think this is so tragic, just telling it makes me want to cry, but in Fresno every year in the summer, they hold a picnic and memorial for anyone who died on the streets in the past year. So basically the, the homeless, the street people that died on the streets and the artists get together and make renderings and every picnic table has a rendering of the person who died and some words about them in their life. And I go there with another sister and we're basically because we were invited and we brought some tins of salve to pass out and some things. And I meet I meet an elder of a Yaki tribe and he asked me for my phone number. And that evening when he called me, he said, you know, in about a month, I'm going up to this holy gathering where 60 tribes gather on a mountaintop. They do it annually. And for four days, we practice our ancient customs and I have a Down syndrome daughter who has taxed the nerves of all the women up there. And if you and another sister would like to be my guest and be a chaperone for my daughter, um, I'm extending that invitation. And I remember saying to him, uh, sir, we're not those kind of nuns because <laughs> this was a little out of scope for what I was used to doing. <laughs> and I remember him saying, I don't give a rat's ass what kind of nun you are. I'm inviting you. <laughs> That's awesome. Started that was in like 2013. So now that's been about an eight year relationship that we've had. And um, yeah, and, and, and so that started it because when he took me on that mount, first of all, I had to go and be briefed on what it means to practice ancient customs. The, The other sister that went with me, we weren't, we had to know what they were talking about. And so we did have to go in a night early and stay at a hotel in Fresno so we could go to this meeting so we could be briefed. And, and then we went to the Holy Mountaintop and David was gracious enough to introduce me to anyone there that had, was involved in medicine making. And all of these women were ancient. They were like 80, 90 years old. And when I asked them why they weren't passing on the knowledge of their medicine making, they said, because the women, the young women aren't walking a red enough road. And, and then, of course, my I'm, I'm shortening what was much longer conversation, but I'm paraphrasing. Basically, my position was, oh, my goodness, you're deciding what's red and not red and what's what's red enough and not red enough, which is basically their talk for for moral 
ethical, the right way of living. What's And you were born when there was no electricity. And these women were born basically digitally wired. So mm-hmm. you have such a culture gap. And, and basically, don't you feel like you're starving your own traditions by not passing them down. So it was the, it was a result of many days of conversation about this, uh, when I got kind of got their blessing to go walk my pink road, which is take the knowledge I could get and do something spiritual with it and do the best I can and serve the native community, which we still do. Gotcha. And I was going to ask you because it's such a, almost a Moses story. You came down the mountain and decided you were going to start this. And I was going to ask, was there a burning bush? Was there a ceremony? But I guess the burning bush was that kind of not that the realization that you had when they weren't passing down the knowledge was metaphorically, or was there a burning bush? Yeah, no, I I did have kind of a burning bush moment. And that was, uh, it's so much respect for native tradition that I went away going oh my goodness, I got to try anyway to build something that is this honorable and this magical and this wonderful. And part of it, part of what happened that weekend, it was hilarious because in our, in our preparation for this holy mountain, you're told no electronics. Of course, we're practicing ancient customs. So leave your cell phones and leave leave uh you know any electronics but while you were there you couldn't help but notice that there's an old native american with his braids down to his knees sitting on a chair with this kid on their grant on his lap watching a tablet and disney mm-hmm. <laughs> top. so like actually i thank them because the other thing that happened was we saw two bear cubs and a bear in a mountaintop and the elder i was walking with at the time said get out your camera and take a picture and i said we're not allowed cameras and he goes Oh, what the hell? Someone here's got a camera. It's like, so we, when we founded our sisters, we decided we were going to be like them. And we have a 5% rule. That means you can break any rule within 5% and no one's going to wake out because that's life. You have to learn to navigate these things. But But what happened up there was because they were breaking the rules, Every year at the end, the last night, there's a uh, open dancing. And these tribes, some of these tribes, like from Alaska and Mexico, up and down the coast, prepare all year long, making their uniforms for this open dance. And this year, the the chief came out or announced through his guy, the way they do, because the chiefs don't really appear so much, uh, is that uh, because no one followed the, because the ancient traditions were so grossly broken, on the mountaintop, they were canceling open dancing. And this caused great heartbreak to this particular Mexican family that was huge and very walked a very strict red road. And they looked forward to this all year and they practiced all year. So there was a messenger was sent to our camp. This is so ancient. I just love it. Was sent to our camp at like 4.30 or 5 in the morning, early in the morning, saying that there's trouble and asking David the elder to come. And he's like, white woman, come with me. And I said, okay, red man. And I followed him. And they, there was a very upset big family over what had happened. They felt it was so rude and so cruel. And brother, it was on brother Dave, uh, David the elder to kind of explain to them and to calm them down. And he was amazing. And he was amazing. And he called on the women. He called on the men to listen to the women. It was the most amazing feminist talk I ever heard. Because the women were urging the men to keep their comms. The man, men were angry and wanted to go do something about it. In the middle of this, in walks the leader of their tribe, all sweaty, and says, what's going on here? And they said, you know, that they felt that an injustice has been done or whatever. And he's like, you're all crazy. 
what had happened is that as soon as it all happened, the, the chiefs had sent a message to them, to him asking him to tend this particular sacred fire as a special honor to him and his tribe for walking the red road while, while everybody else wasn't. So they had been honored and they didn't know they had been honored. So the men were angry. The women were trying to get the men to calm down. David the Elder stepped in, made, took the opportunity to turn it into a speech about the wisdom behind female leadership and why the men should listen to the women. Oh, I can't talk anymore. I'm going to cry. Anyway, that I did have moments like that where I'm like, wow, with this kind of code, we could live honorably together. That's beautiful. Yeah, I was going to ask you too about the women passing down the um, the knowledge of uh, through the Indian tribes because the early Christian church, the women were in charge with um, the keeping the secrets of all. Well, this is also going into the psychedelic cult theory. I don't know if you've uh, if, what you think about that, but that the Christianity was started as a psychedelic cult um, with the uh, Greek Greek mysteries. Are you familiar with any of that? Yeah, I have a hard time arguing about fables as well. I'm pretty rooted in the earth. And so much of what we've been fed is fables. I My vision of Jesus is he was a total hippie and he smoked weed and he did psychedelics and mushrooms because he was thinking if he existed, if Jesus isn't a fable, so that's where I always have to start because I'm not convinced and there's no evidence there would have been in the Dead Sea Scrolls if he was as famous as they say of his time. So, and most of even the Catholic nuns I know consider him a fable, but the Jesus I know, he was a reformer and he was a feminist. So of course he's probably very in touch with plants and women. I think that all goes together. Gotcha, okay. I was just thinking that the women were given a much more important part of the of spirituality throughout um, indigenous uh, cultures and through early Christianity, but it changed some, at some point in organized religion, it went patriarchal and it right. stayed that right. way. Like for example, in the native cultures, the land always stays with the women and gets passed down through the women's line. And I've been doing a lot of research recently because I'm trying, <laughs> I've been for ever because I was raised by the Catholic nuns saying that St. Scholastica was the first Catholic nun in the year 880. And I come to find out that I think she was fictitious and that they gave a hundred years later, a Pope needed to come up with some feminist writings. So he made Benedict have a twin sister and invented her when really this, the evidence of the first convents predate that. We have evidence of the first convents and monasteries as early as 500 BC, although scientists believe that they've gone on forever. And that is a pretty simple concept that the landowner has land, decides to open it up and make it a spiritual community and have other people live there and work together. That's an ancient concept and it predates Christianity. And I don't think St. Scholastica was at all the first abbess. Gotcha. Okay. And um, the Beguines, um, I didn't know much about them. And you, Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, Beguines. We were saying it wrong. You can see earlier interviews of me calling them Beguines. And then the British came and they're like, they're Beguines. You're saying it wrong. <laughs> okay. um, yes. Here's the issue with the Beguines, just in case you have historians listening. We only have evidence of like Beguines from the year 1000 forward. That means we only have evidence of Christian Beguines. I believe that the Beguines way predated Christianity and that they went extinct because the women, they were women led, women run, they were independent of any religion, they owned their own property, they were scholars and leaders, they earned their own money. Um, and so they had to be destroyed because that just didn't fit with the idea of the priests running everything. And even when they 
this, the, even the Catholic Church's stories are confused about Scholastica. Some of their stories say that she founded her own uh, convent when her brother founded a monastery. Some of their later stories say, oh, no, no. She founded a convent and her brother ran it. Like he, they all they all reported to her brother. So the stories have been so mixed, it's hard to tell. But I think it's pretty clear that when times get tough, there's war, there's a shortage of men, or there's just poverty that you can live a better life if you're if you all group up at that basically, you know, I always say four sisters, and we have every sort of a streaming platform available because we all had our own, like one had Hulu and one had Netflix and one had this and one had that. So the idea of pooling your resources, working together and living together is an ancient concept. Gotcha. And that's a part of your living simply, which is part of your solace. Um, our solace, our, it spells out our seven vows. Yes. Yeah. And, and I like that living simply. And I, what was the one thing I think you said? I like that means you can't have a yacht, but someone else can have one and you can ride on it. Yeah, I always say that. I say <laughs> makes you think about that, but if you have one, you can invite us and we'll come for a ride. I think was that Leonardo DiCaprio's kind of, you know, he's in a lot of trouble because he was a picture of him on the yacht. He's an activist about climate change and he could use that too. Like, it's not my <laughs> yacht. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, so I love what you're doing. And um, so so let's talk a little bit about what uh, you guys um have a hemp business, right? C B D hemp business. Yeah. Yes, we believe that our ancient mothers, the Beguines, were known for their excellence in hemp, in textile making, medicine making, soaps, and things. There's some evidence of that, historical evidence of that anyway, that they were, that at one time in the Middle Ages, there was not a castle in Europe that didn't have a Beguine-like structure that served the people inside the castle, as well as they had farms near the castle. And that's kind of us. We're 12 minutes from a health club. We don't want to be isolated uh, even though we're on a little farm, we don't want to be that isolated from the community or from society. Um, yes, we have a one acre farm. Before COVID, our best year, we did 1.2 million in sales. There's six sisters and two brothers that work from this farm. And then we have other people that work for us, probably four or five other people, but they're as far away as Macedonia and Toronto doing their specialist kind of work for us. Um, but uh, yeah, we, our main product is we make, basically we make all our medicines by the cycles of the moon. Our number one seller is the topical salve. We put it out there to the people saying, Hey, look, the science has been, uh, unethically and immorally suppressed for a hundred years. We don't know what this will do for us. Just don't eat it and don't put it in your eyes, but tell us how it works basically as a topical salve. And we learned that people were putting it on their temples and the, at night to help sleep or behind their ears in the morning to prevent migraines uh, for skin issues, which we never thought of. We, I mean, we were looking for a muscle and joint pain reliever, which we got, but we got so much more. In fact, if you're in the weed business and you get sticky in your trimming, you end up with raw hands at the end of the season from washing them to get the the sticky off your hands from the oils off the plant. Our salve, you can rub on your hands and take a rag and just wipe it off and it comes right off and your hands stay soft all season. We just discovered that. But that's the nature of the experimental business of where we are with CBD right now. So the public was very experimental in our salve even now. So before COVID, we were doing about a million, consistently a million to 1.2 million in sales a year. That is not profit. That is sales. The media loves to say we did that in profit and I'm not a magician. So we did that in sales. 
And, but since COVID, we've been struggling to be at 60, 70% of that. But still half of our sales are the topical salve. The next bigger seller is probably our oil drops, which also have CBD, coconut oil drops. And then we've recently launched a mushroom coffee and that has no CBD. And we did that on purpose, which is interesting because I have coffee companies calling me all over the world from all over the world asking how to put CBD in their coffee. And here we make a mushroom coffee with no CBD. But that's because we're trying to grow our international commerce and we're being restricted because on the CBD side. Okay, well, I definitely I have to ask you about the mushroom coffee because I've just gotten really into mushrooms. Um, I've always been into the psychedelic variety, but I just got into um, the, the, the king trumpets and miyatakis and baby shiitakes and really getting a mushroom diet. It's a, for me, not eating less meat, mushrooms is what I've found has been a really good replacement for meat and for proteins. So what mushroom coffee is no, has no like actual coffee bean. It's completely mushroom. No, it's no coffee beans that I, I mean, I did a lot of research on that, but apparently to the world, it's mushroom coffee, even if it has no coffee. Now I have mine every morning with about two ounces of real coffee because I haven't given up my real coffee. I like my real coffee, but then I put in about four ounces of hot uh, boiling water, a teaspoon of mushroom coffee, some latte whipped up oat milk. And I have a latte that's amazing. And you will find that it's an amazing mood stabilizer. Ours has six mushrooms plus ashwagandha root. And then the other, the base is a cocoa and a very high blend of English, high blend English tea. So it's, it works like this. It's about 20% the tea, 20% the cocoa. And over 50% is mushrooms and ashwagandha root and spices. So you will definitely notice the difference in your mood. We had an ex-Catholic nun with us for nearly three years. And when COVID happened, she melted down within three months and stole a car and ran away. And it was after that that I said, ladies, the weed isn't doing it for us. We need to up our game on mood stabilizing diet. And we studied the mushrooms and we experimented with different mushroom coffees. And through COVID, we developed our own and just launched it last August. That's really cool. And, so, and the caffeine then would come from the, just the tea and the cocoa? Yes, it's uh, about nine. Per, sorry, a regular cup of coffee is 90 milligrams of caffeine. Our cup of coffee, our cup of mushroom coffee is about 30 milligrams of caffeine. And that comes from the breakfast tea and the cocoa. I think that's it maybe just from the breakfast tea. And then the, and then the, yes, because the, I'm, I'm not sure the cocoa has any caffeine. And then, um, sorry, what was, what, what were you asking me about the coffee? Oh yeah. yeah. And decaffeinated coffee is about 10 milligrams. I was just giving this scale, 90 milligrams, 30 milligrams, 10 milligrams, 90 is regular caffeinated coffee. 10 milligrams is regular decaffeinated coffee and 30 milligrams of uh, caffeine is where our, our sit now. Gotcha. I feel like that's about the same as a green tea. Like if you just had a green tea, I think it's about 30% um, or 30 milligrams. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and also I want to point out, I'm drinking a cup of coffee from a cup with pictures of mushrooms on it. My we love mushrooms. Place. We love mushrooms. In fact, we're looking forward to start growing our own here soon. No, you're growing your own. You're not talking about the, um, the psychedelic mushrooms that are get, getting decriminalized in California. You're talking about medicinal for the coffee and stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, no, we're talking about just the functional mushrooms, the reishi and the lion's mane, the tiger's tail, shiitake, those mushrooms. We have yeah, to create a different micro environment for each. So we've already invested in the airtight shipping unit to build it in, but we have more work to do. 
Gotcha. That's really cool. I'm actually about to look into growing my own too. Uh, Lion's Mane is what I'm going for and doing that for its uh, neurogenics, um, whatever it supposedly offers. I was going to ask you, uh, can can you order your coffee online? Yes. Yeah, everything's at our store, sistersofthevalley.org. See, sistersofthevalley.org? Uh-huh. Okay, yeah, I'm going to order some for sure. And so- oh, good. I hope you like it. I really quickly got to like it. But I'm telling you, anybody who switches from like two cups of coffee a day to like a half a cup of coffee, which I did, and a cup and a half of hot mushroom brew, you're going to notice a difference in your mood. You're going to notice a difference in your uh how not tired you are, your performance, you're just, it's different. I think coffee is like a chocolate bar. You, you spike from the caffeine. Mushroom coffee doesn't do that. Gotcha. Well, I'm, I'm excited to try it. I, like I said, I've been really getting into mushrooms lately. I found a mushroom person at the local farmer's market that I go to. It's, I, re- I really enjoy that. And um, all the different flavors too. So um, I wanted to ask you about, because my podcast is the peace on drugs and, and you're, you um, you know, you're into the CBD business, but what are your uh, thoughts on ending prohibition, drug prohibition? Do you guys have thoughts on that with your activism or anything? Yeah, I mean, I think in one way is I think Portugal's brilliant because they, and we should all be taking Portugal's lead on this. They're just decriminalized drugs. The fact is we already know most people are doing drugs, are self-medicating. We do such a terrible job of dealing with people's anxiety disorders and mental disorders and Uh, behavioral disorders we just fail on that so I just you know I'm it's pretty clear I just think we should take any money spent on enforcing drug drugs and put that towards rehabilitation as Portugal has done in fact we should have free needle centers if you're going to do meth do meth get a needle where you don't die from infection on it I'm I actually I had to go to Portugal to perform a wedding in the last couple of years and I just assumed I could buy weed there (laughs) So even though they've decriminalized everything, there's no way to buy anything. There's no legal way to buy anything. So that's kind of a mind blower. Yeah. And that's where I'm at. That's why I'm for legalization. I don't know how you do it with certain drugs and they have to figure all that out, but legalizing to where people can get them. They don't have to buy them on the streets, but decriminalization is a great step. If that's what we, what we can get for now, like Oregon just did, then uh, that's a great step forward. No, I think it's coming. I love it that psilocybin has been decriminalized in certain places. So we have such a myoptic view from California. To Californians now, cannabis being not an issue, everyone adapted so quickly. Like you can't use, even growing weed as a reason for to take custody or to have better custody. The courts don't care. You can't like, you can't like call someone and report them for smoking weed. No one cares. It's not, it's really very quickly the police and everybody have seen it as medicine. And I, I think too, our police here are beginning to realize that we have a mental health crisis, not a drug crisis. There's, there should be no war on drugs. There should be a war on failed mental health systems. I agree. And, and that's the problem. When we started the war on drugs, we kind of went from a system of rehabilitation or at least sort of trying rehabilitation to a complete punitive system where we punish, punish, punish. And then they also, uh, you know, as the war on drugs raged, uh, like for even, even the Clinton administration, the Democrats just to prove that they were tough on crime to try to get those swing votes where it went even harder. And they, they took money from public housing and put it into building prisons. So our public housing system in this country is now our prison system, which is completely backwards. It's insane. It's insane. 
Yeah, and, and I, what we do about it, though, I think we're on the right path, which is slowly uh, decriminalizing. And it starts with cannabis, which is, I would say, that was the most popular of the illegal substances because it's probably the, you know, I consider the most harmless. Therefore, people were using it regardless. And you can grow it yourself. You can grow it yourself mm-hmm. in a closet in your house. You can. Now, in California, though, you said like there's no concern about it anymore. It's kind of over with, but you can still get, can you still get fired from your job if a private company uh, could test your urine, like at a hospital? I don't, I don't think so. I think if you have, I, the only way is if you operate heavy machinery, if you're a pilot, if you're operating, I think if maybe in the hospitals, I don't know, but as far as I know, cannabis is being slowly taken away as one of those things they drug test for. And it should be. I, my sister, though, she she's in Colorado and she was just getting a job at the hospital and she was worried about failing the drug test because she uses a small amount of uh, edible to sleep. That's only, she's not a, never has been a person that was even into it, but it helps her sleep. But she's had to quit taking it to pass a drug test. So they need to get them off a drug test. They need to just get it off a drug test. Oh, of course. And I'm in Florida. We have medicinal. Um, and if you have your medical card, it doesn't matter if you work for a company that says you have to pass a drug test. You have to pass a drug test. You can't show them your card. Right, right, right. Did, but those drug tests don't test for psilocybin, do they? The standard. No. Yeah, I think it's because it's not it's not profitable for them to test <laughs> or LSD or most of the psychedelics. For one, they break down very fast in your body. They're hard to test for. But two, I don't think they're common as enough enough for that to be worth for them to try to test for it. But um, it's also interesting too that they they've never tested for um, the other. Uh, synthetic cannabinoids, which are much more addictive and dangerous than, than traditional. So people who are on parole and, and with certain jobs were switching to the more dangerous synthetic ones because they could pass a drug test. So you're pushing people into worse situations that are, they said some of those drugs are more addictive than opioids and they're synthetic cannabinoids. Yes, yes. Yes, but, yeah. but we have a long history of, of preferring to give very harmful addictive pills to people that over plant medicine. I mean, that's exactly and that's why we have things like fentanyl the because it starts with opium and that's a, a and i'm not saying it's not addictive opium by itself is addictive but it's not nearly as bad and as devastating as once you turn it into heroin or then you turn it into fentanyl as it gets stronger and stronger i'm going to interrupt you a minute and ask uh, her to stop vacuum please <laughs> hey, that's okay Sorry, she's <laughs> all right. Okay, so where were we? We're talking about, um, I was just talking about the more natural, like if you did a, if you made a poppy tea from your garden and you use that to, to medicate whatever you use the opioid for, that's a much mild, milder, whatever you want to call it. If you got a habit with it, an addiction, then it, once you turn it into heroin and you're injecting heroin, it's a lot different than using the natural poppy form. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then, and then everybody would be more moderate. We wouldn't be killing ourselves off from overdoses and so forth. The, the, I, I mean, the whole business of what Oxycontin did to our world and they, I don't know if you know it, they now make like super Oxycontin pills that are 24 hours and they just, those things are dangerous. They are dangerous, but if you look at the the statistics of people that overdosed on Oxycontin, which there definitely were, there was a kid in my own neighborhood that overdosed on Oxycontin and died. Um, so definitely, it's not, I'm not saying it's not deadly, but then when they they basically cut off Oxycontin to the, the pill mills and the, the easy accessibility of Oxycontin and pushed all those addicts straight to the streets, they should have, what they should have done is said, all right, now you can go get your Oxycontin. All addicts can go get it from a certain place. They're going to help you get off of it. Right, and, right, right. 
instead of just saying no more, it's over. Now they're all dying of fentanyl. And the amount of deaths after Oxycontin was stopped and they were forced to fentanyl, it's it's gone it's so much higher. I want to say at the peak of Oxycontin, it might have been 10,000 deaths or something. And then it's 100,000 in the last 12 months deaths from fentanyl. Wow. So, so yeah, we, we mishandled it completely and they missed the point. When you, when you create addiction, yeah. you don't cure it by cutting off the, the drug because it's available on the streets. No, that's the same with their Suboxone. I had a nephew who, when they put him on Suboxone, uh, I guess he was a heroin addict, then that's a little bit of heroin. Then when they fall, they have to do a lot more heroin to feel it. And so every time he would fall, he would nearly die because he would have to do so much. It's just a creepy system. Well, the subox, so suboxone is, um, I, I get confused. It's a partial agonist. So it's actually completely, it's not a full agonist like heroin is, but yeah. If, and I think if you're on it, it blocks your opioid receptor also. So if you were on suboxone and you went and did heroin, yeah, most of the heroin you did wouldn't uh, attach right. to the receptor. So you'd have to do a lot more. Um, but also a lot of people overdose if they quit that, if they quit and they go out on the streets and try to do a, 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 their regular amount they can overdose because their tolerance right. actually went down. Right. It's the, and the idea that suboxone, I don't think is the preferable. That's why Switzerland, they've went straight up to giving people heroin. If you're addicted to heroin, they give them heroin and that right. actually works a lot better and you can get people off of heroin. Some people will just stay on heroin though. And it's not actually that bad. It's a very functional drug for them. Right. And, and I'm not it's like, I, I think for most people, it's not ideal to be addicted to, to really anything. You shouldn't have to have something you have to have in your body or, but for some people who have suffered trauma or for whatever right. reason it stabilizes them, I don't think we should stop people from, from medicating right. themselves. I agree. I agree completely. We just have to take a more compassionate view towards what's going on with each individual. And that usually if you look beneath the hood, you find out there is some trauma, there's some sickness, there's some pain, there's something else going on. Exactly. I think we, we need a system that's much more empathetic. We, we've kind of lost that. It's more, um, it's all about punishment, punishment, punishment. And you see it across the world with, with the drug war. I mean, what's happened with the cartels in Mexico, the, how we go after the cartel is so much more important to people than how we fix the problems in Mexico of all the people dying of, of uh, right, violent deaths. Exactly, because it's a problem born of poverty. And if we could fix that situation and get it, it, almost all these other troubles would fix themselves. We create our own problems and then go, oh, ick, we have a mess. Exactly. And we like to treat the, uh, not the actual, what's at the root of the, of the cause is not what we treat. We treat what's what we're seeing. Instead of the disease, yes. Exactly. Yes. We don't treat mental illness. We treat, we try to treat addiction. So we take, take, take people to these places and we say, your problem is drugs. You have to stay away from drugs. That's not the problem. The re- why did they get on drugs in the first right. place? And then they send them back to their real life and they relapse. Exactly. Exactly. Are you, are you familiar with the rat park? Uh, thing? And life is tough and we don't offer a lot of assistance to people who are hopeless or have no choices or no options. It's a really harsh society we have here. And I really didn't realize it until I lived like nearly a decade in the Netherlands and got to experience a culture that's much more friendly to its poor people and much more caring as a society. And that's why they don't have street people there. They don't have teen pregnancies like we do. They don't have teen abortion rates like we do. They Everything is gentler when you take care of your people, when society is gentle. And everything's gentler when you look at somebody who's doing drugs and going, huh, wonder what kind of trauma he hasn't resolved instead of looking at them and going, what a loser. Exactly. And that's, I don't know how that became our mentality. Well, I do know how to create amazing, these 
huge propaganda campaigns that our government uh, put out, and not just through commercials from them, but through our television programming. People watch the, the I drugs. Don't we, I don't think we were ever kinder, honey. We are descendants of slave owners, after oh, all. Oh, oh no. As far as I'm talking about, as far as our, our idea of drug addicts being a loser. No, as far as this being kind, our country was founded on a, a system where basically to keep the people in check was they created racism and a way to keep the white people, the poor whites, just a little bit better off than the slaves, and then have them hate each other. And then you see it's it's manifesting in all these ways. Racism is really at the core of the way we treat our poor. And, and I know poor whites suffer also, but it's a. Uh, yes, yes. No, I get it. I get it. I get it. It's, it's all steeped in racism. It really is. Yeah. And, and it's um, and we like to think that we've gone past it. And I, I thought we were, honestly, before I started this podcast, I thought our country's not nearly as racist as it was. That's ridiculous. And then I started really looking into the drug war and I was like, oh, no, we just covered it up a lot better. It's still all there. Yeah. If it's organized and in a shiny uniform, it's. It's okay. Um, and and it's not okay. It's not okay. But we've we've buttered it up and cleaned it up and and made it look okay. So that basically the public doesn't notice the systematic racism that goes on or the stacked deck against people who've had generations of stacked deck against them. Exactly. And then they use words like tough on crime and people think, yeah, let's stop the criminals, not realizing that that's actually code for we're going to go into these communities and make it a lot harder on them and rest them more and stop yeah. them from voting and keep exactly. them from employment. It's um, it's really sad, but I do think we're turning a, a corner. I think 2020 kind of fueled some of that because people's rage came out and people marched in the streets. And I think that uh, we're start. I mean, it's not the first time this has happened where they figure out a way to keep the system moving the way it's going, but I think we might, because of the spreading of information, because of podcasts, because of, what people are now doing. I think we can actually start seeing some positive changes. No, I agree. What Didn't something just happen with the globe, Golden Globes or something where because of their racism and misogyny, they couldn't get anybody to speak? I mean, everybody's holding this culture accountable now. And that's wonderful. Everybody's like, wait, is this right? Is this right? Should we be doing this? Are you doing that? I'm going to hold you accountable. If you're going, and I think the Harvey Weinstein you know, helped us. Um, uh, may he rest in peace. George Floyd sparked an angry, angry protest from border to border, which was deserved and overdue and necessary. I think for the first time we're seeing cops go to jail. Um, and so, yeah, I think we also I've noticed just myself personally that after you know, like six years, seven years of having an open door policy with the media here because we want to be transparent. We don't want to be confused with religions who aren't transparent at all. Um, that it was always men and it may be with one out of 20 visits being a woman and then always a white woman. And all of a sudden, like the last three interactions we've had were with black women directing or black women producing. And we're like, whoa. So I'm definitely starting to feel a bit of a change here. Uh, that's great. I, I think it's, I mean, it's great to finally see something like that happening. And I know um, for, especially for minorities to see people, uh, you know, I mean, when Obama got elected, that was a huge thing for people to see. I don't think we got the changes we wanted in culture when that happened, but it still was a positive thing. I was thing. happy when Obama got elected and I was equally as miserable when Trump won. Yeah, I agree too. And I, and I hate uh, getting into politics because I don't want to, uh, I don't want to, uh, my issues, I feel like they're so important. I don't want to offend somebody because the Trumpers are so dogmatic. If you say the wrong thing, they'll 
boom. And I have family. I mean, it's just. Yeah, but we, we, what, what you really mean is they're simple and they're non-discerning. And I think a lot of that is on purpose. It's just like, I don't want to see the facts. I like my racist misogyny, nice misogynist 1950s view of how the world was. I don't want any input. I see that as a lack of discernment. So I don't mind insulting them if you can mind. I, that. I, I, I 100% agree with you. I don't. The problem is I feel like we need, I need the, the right wing on uh, the side of the war on, attain the war on drugs because we need them. And they're, most of them are so far the other way. I'm trying to pull them this way by not by, by walking on eggshells, which is stupid. I because I look no, at no, 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 no. In this case, you be the brother and I'll pretend like I'm not the sister. You're absolutely right about the point that they're not listening to us. So if you can find a way to make them listen by not offending them, that's the best way. So I'm down with that. Gotcha. I, I will say though, I doing the research of um reading uh, like the uh the new Jim Crow and seeing how racism has played into the current caste system and the, and the current prison system. And you look at the way the Republicans grab swing voters from the South, they did it by appealing to, the, to their racist, uh, the, the way that they've been molded throughout history of, of this country through racism and how they said how this is written before Trump. And it was talking about how Bush used that rhetoric to get, get those voters. And what you saw with Trump was that times 10. He used that model and thought, what if I turned it up to 10? would that work? And it didn't just work. It was, it, it created a cult. It's, it's the craziest thing that ever happened. Yeah. I, I am also though, hold the Catholic church directly responsible for creating a Trump. And here's why for the last 40 years, it has been their policy to fund the most Christian person, the candidate, the most right-wing candidate. So at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level, they shoveled money at the one who thumped the Bible the loudest. Didn't matter if he had a concubine of women at home and dead bodies in the basement. If he was the biggest Bible thumping Christian, the Catholic church dumped his, their money that way. What do you do after 40 years? This is what you get. You get a Trump. You get a Trump. And so, yes, I think it was, uh, you're right about what you're saying. I'm not arguing with you, but I'm saying that the Catholic role church and probably other churches, not just the Catholic church, I've only studied the Catholic church, but if other churches did, did that, then they created this. They created this by being simple themselves and they passed it on by being simple and undiscerning. They didn't say, oh, this guy has dead bodies in his basin and a concubine of women. They just said, oh, wow, he's loud with his Bible. They were not discerning. And what happens? Now we've got like one fifth of all our adult population thinks it's okay to be undiscerning. It's okay to be simple. I, I, I understand that. And that's, that, just to be clear, when you talk about the person with all the, the, um, dead people in their basement. You're, this is just the idea. It doesn't matter what bag is there. It doesn't matter what negative things they've done. You're not talking about a specific story, right? No, I'm not. I'm just talking about how the philosophy of feeding and supporting and giving money to a person with no brains, but that can rattle a Bible or no ethics or no morals, or could be quite evil in fact, but because yeah, yeah. rattle a Bible, they're going to get our support. And that's what the right wing does. And it's crazy that I remember I, my family's uh, very, I'm from North Carolina, Bible Belt. My family's all very Christian and religious. And when Trump was in the primaries, they did not like him at all. They're like, he's just nasty. And then when he became the candidate, he's a good person. He's a Christian. He's, he, he held the Bible. 
they just got fooled so easily, but it's almost like, not that they got fooled. They wanted to be, as soon as they, like they made the decision, well, now he's the candidate. So now he's my leader. And then they fell, they went extreme for Trump. It was like all this, all, now all of a sudden, not only do we not, not like him. I, know, I, have him. An aunt, I have an aunt who's the same. Like I can't go. She hung a, a well, I have a neighbor who thinks she has a sign on his front porch. that says Trump will rise again. Like he's the coming of Christ. My aunt tried to put a poster in her front door of him, a picture of him, and the neighbors asked her to kindly take it down. My goodness, they they have. It went from they couldn't tolerate him to he's our new God. It's mm-hmm. very, very sad. It's sad and it's scary. It's crazy. And the Trump will rise again. Also, though, I also see that there was a systematic starvation of the education system and a deterioration of our education system. And this sort of overhyping of university for all. So we starved our trade schools and we starved our community colleges. And so we have, you know, unfortunately one fifth of our adults are just sadly not thinking straight and subject to any kind of propaganda. I agree with that. And that's what we say. Every time there's any kind of argument about anything political, especially out in public where I'm at down here in Florida, you see that immediately. Their, their blinders go up. They will not hear any information. They have no cognitive flexibility. They are here, and this is what they believe. And it doesn't matter how ridiculous what they're saying is. They're just full throttle. And it is. They weren't educated the right ways. Because, And they might have read a bunch of books when they were in school or whatever, but they're not taught to think for themselves. They're taught to think in you know, one way. So we see that play out. And It's a frightening phenomenon where people who are completely uninformed are aggressive and insistent on being right. It's just, I I think it's a bizarre phenomenon where they completely have no knowledge, but they can constantly, all they carry to the table is a distrust of any information. What they're using is distrust. So I'll say, but didn't you see the statistics? That people who are double vaccinated are, have a, their risk of dying is like one one percent of people who weren't, and then they'll go, yeah, that's what they want you to believe. And it's like, ah. <laughs> you can't win. It's the, what was that? There was a story that it was like a, a flat earther, a flat earther dies and goes to heaven, and finally gets to meet God and ask gets to ask God one question and says, "All right, God, is the Earth flat or round?" And God says. The earth is round. It's as round as any ball you've ever seen. It's a, it's round. And he goes, just what I thought. This this uh, conspiracy goes higher than I thought. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I know you have another thing to do at one o'clock. So I'm, I'm, we're going to wrap up here. I thank you so much for being on here. I'm going to ask something. You don't have to do it since you've done a bunch. You've done other of these. I don't know if you've been asked to do this before, but I heard you did a closing prayer from the Game of Thrones season four. And I was going to see if yes. you could do a closing prayer for us. Yeah. Do you want that one? Yeah. It's 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 pretty cool. I don't have it completely memorized, so I'm going to pull it down here. <laughs> here we go. We ask the Father to judge us with mercy, accepting our human frailty. We ask the Mother to bless our crops so we can feed ourselves and all who come to our door. We ask the warrior to give us courage in these days of strife and turmoil. We ask the maiden to protect our natures and keep us from the clutches of depravity. We ask the smith to strengthen our hands and our backs so that we may finish the work required of us. And we ask the crone to guide us on our journey from darkness to darkness. 
Oh. Oh. Thank you so much for doing this. It was so, so great talking to you. Thank you. And send me the link when you've got it ready. I will. I definitely will. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Right, have a good day. Bye. Bye. All right. Peace, Nicks. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what we're doing, go on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, The Peace on Drugs. Subscribe to our newsletter. Go to www.thepeaceondrugs.com slash subscribe. And as always, have a great day, week, month, year, life. Peace out. Peace out.